Well, let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning. And as you're doing that, uh, I want you to have some phrases and sounds in the back of your mind. In fact, as I uh, re rehearse them with you, I want you to kind of in your mind just do what I'm doing. Are, are you ready? Like, for instance, here's one. Oh, just kind of be thinking like, oh, here's how we'd say that in words. Like, I get it. Just kind of think about that phrase. Or maybe here's one. Aha. Kind of that moment when you're like, now I see. So you kind of hear the sounds and the phrases. Oh, I get it. Aha. I see. Those are all sounds and phrases that really describe moments in which we as believers experience the Holy Spirit's illumination. Say the word with me, illumination. It just means the moment the Holy Spirit turned the light on, flipped the switch. You suddenly are able to understand what you previously did not understand. That is in a theological word called the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And in week seven of this series on the Holy Spirit, we're going to look at that role or ministry or work of the Holy Spirit. And I think the best chapter that describes that is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So you're open to that portion of your Bible, I'm sure, by now. Here's a heads up of how we're going to approach this a little differently this morning. I'm going to kind of lift off or lift out some specific phrases that show us an equation that, that's always in play. And so we're just going to kind of look at those phrases specifically. I'll bring in some other verses from this context, some other words. But I'm going to reserve the entire reading of the chapter till the end. And my prayer this morning is this, that we'll kind of lift out some phrases. We'll see this equation. It will make sense to us. And then with that equation in mind, we'll hear the entire chapter read. And my prayer is that it will blanket us and massage us in a way that, that perhaps we'll get it. We'll have an aha, oh, I see it moment that perhaps we have not had before. So in regards to this illuminating work by the Holy Spirit, what is the end game of it? What's the the, the ultimate goal, well, verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 2 tells us, here's the end game of the Holy Spirit's illuminating work. And I would say the end game of all preachers and pastors and elders, teachers, congregations, here's the ultimate goal, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the, say it church with me, the last three words, power of God. In two words, the end game of the Holy Spirit's illuminating work is God's power and your faith resting in that. Now, this is a very rich phrase. Can I walk you through parts of it? Paul here says he wants your faith to rest in God's power, meaning your fundamental system of beliefs. There are some other words you could use to describe, I think, what Paul's aiming at here. You could use the word worldview. Uh, you could talk about your, your uh, core way of life, uh, the essential way you see things. But when he talks about faith here, it's a noun. He's discussing and describing really the core set of beliefs that guide your life, that affect your viewpoints. It, this is what drives you, what 
determines how you see things. In other words, this is really the essence and the core of, of what you believe. And Paul's making sure that that, he says, he wants to met that to rest. I think that's an interesting word here, don't you? He, he didn't use a word that would describe our effort. He didn't say try. He didn't say work. He actually used a word that describes settledness, calmness, like no stress or anxiety. What's the word? Rest. Paul here is, is saying at the end of the day, here's what I'm after. I want your way of life, your essential, fundamental, foundational basis of beliefs to rest in God's power. Not man's wisdom, but God's power. Describing really in God's power, divine activity. So something has happened outside of us, apart from us. And Paul is saying, I want your way of life, your fundamental basis for living to rest in that and not in man's wisdom. So the ultimate goal of the Holy Spirit's limiting power, of, of everything we say and do as a church, those who lead the church, those who are in the church, is that our faith might be settled in God's activity. That's kind of what he's saying here. Now, when you read that, you have to ask yourself, so how does that occur? Let's just ask a number of investigative questions as we walk through some key phrases here. How does that occur? How do we get to that place? Well, God's power is accessed or available through what verse 7 says is God's wisdom. Look at verse 7. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. And in your Bible, you should circle the phrase in verse five, where it says power of God. You should circle that phrase and then go to verse seven, circle wisdom of God and draw a line between the two. And you'll see in a minute, we'll have a, a second line and a third circle. So just hang with me. And here Paul is saying that there is this ultimate end game of the power of God, but it only comes through the wisdom of God. And that's what he says he's imparting a secret and hidden wisdom. Now, I want to spend most of my time on this aspect to make sure we understand th what the wisdom of God is and things about it. So first of all, notice that it's in contrast to man's wisdom. Notice what he says here, that this wisdom of God, it's not like the wisdom of men. And he describes some of that perhaps in chapters one and two, Specifically here in chapter two, he talks about lofty speech in verse one. Do you see that? He talks about perhaps strength by talking. He talks about his weakness and fear and trembling, indicating that humanly he should have power and authority and strength, but he didn't come to them in that way. He came in this weakness and fear. He came with not lofty speech, but he came with just uh, God's kind of wisdom, not man's wisdom. So he's contrasting what is apparently on the outside, man's rhetoric, man's authority, his power, the perceived external appearance with really what God does, which is a, a wisdom not rooted in how man looks or man's power. It's, it's secret and it's hidden. By the way, I, I read this week uh, from a second century writer, believe it or not, found some old documents mentioned in a commentary. And, and this second century document describes Paul as a short Bald man with crooked legs and a hooked nose. I like Paul. I'm like short, bald, got somewhat of a weird nose. 
I'm thinking Paul's a pretty good guy, right? But you can imagine if you're in this, in this church at Corinth and this guy walks in, uh, he's not very impressive. He's not using language that you're used to perhaps as a Greek, which is in the, the world of the, of the rhetorical and, and logic and reasoning. And as, if you're in the world of the Jews, you're looking for something very impressive, uh, you know, stature-wise. He's none of these. And it's intentional. Like, like Paul is intentionally saying, I'm not going down these roads. In fact, instead, I'm going to impart to you God's wisdom, which is secret and hidden. Like, what does that mean? It sounds almost cryptic, doesn't it? Well, let me explain to you what the word secret and hidden mean. Secret just means unfolding mystery. Uh, in fact, the same words used back in verse 1 when he says that he came proclaiming the testimony of God. The word testimony in verse 1 is the same word uh, used of secret in verse 7. And so it means just an unfolding plan or an incrementally revealed plan of God. We've discussed this before in previous messages, I think in Ephesians. If you weren't here, you can go back and hear those. But this is how the plan of God works. It is an incremental unfolding plan. But I think the interesting word in this verse is the word hidden. I mean, Paul blatantly owns this. He says, hey, you know what? We're not worried about man's wisdom or man's appearance or this, this look of power and authority and strength. I'm coming to you in weakness, fear, and I'm imparting an incrementally unfolding plan. And by the way, it's hidden. Like, like who owns that, right? You know, just, you, you think you'd want to kind of be a little more user-friendly, wouldn't you? Like seeker-friendly? Like, no, we'll make this easy and accessible. Paul says, no, what I'm preaching, it's hidden. So what does he mean by that? What he's saying is this. It's impossible to access humanly. Like you, you can't just get it naturally. In fact, both of these ideas that you don't access it naturally and that it's incremental are seen in the following phrases after verse seven. Look what he says here. Your nose is in the text, right? He says that God decreed this wisdom before the ages for our glory. That sounds like an incremental intention, doesn't it? Something was started before the ages began and God's been naturally, incrementally, progressively revealing it. But look what he says next, that it's not possible to grasp this on your own because if it was, then those who crucified Jesus would not have crucified him. They would have known, hey, this is Jesus, God's son, the Lord of glory. We shouldn't crucify him, but you can't access it humanly. It's impossible. In fact, look what he says in the latter part of nine. He said, he quotes your Isaiah a couple of times. He said that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, you can't in the natural mind conceive with your mind. You can't describe with your tongue. You can't hear with your ears really what God is doing. Now, often we, we read that verse, 1 Corinthians 2, 9, and we think it's describing heaven, but I don't think he's pointing to heaven here. He may be pointing to what God is doing now and in the future, but I think the real point of verse 9 is pointing to salvation. That no one can comprehend how in the world God actually in his wisdom saves people. All that he's doing to bring people into his family. Who could think of it in that way? Who could imagine it? No one naturally can. It's hidden. So what is this secret or this unfolding, progressive, incremental plan of God that's actually impossible to access humanly? What is it? Is there a succinct understanding of God's wisdom 
Because we need to know that because that's actually what leads to God's power. Well, there is. And the most succinct definition of God's wisdom is the cross of Christ. Let me show you in this context, chapters 1 and 2, how Paul keeps alluding to the cross of Christ as the wisdom of God and what he will focus on and not the wisdom of man, which is their rhetoric, their logic, their power, their strength, their impressiveness. He, in this immediate text, verse 2 of chapter 2, he does say, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He then talks about um, how this was, of course, the way the Spirit demonstrated God's power, and this was opposite of man's wisdom. So you begin to see, okay, so Paul sees Christ crucified as the opposite of man's wisdom, implying this must be God's wisdom. But I think throughout the context, he actually becomes even more blatantly clear. Look back at chapter 1, verse 18. Here he says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are saved or being saved, it is the power of God. And you'll find that the power of God, the wisdom of God, are really close siblings. I don't think they're synonyms, but they are very close brothers and sisters, we'll call them. He talks about in verse 19 that the cross destroys the wisdom of the wise. And so again, he's always comparing the wisdom of men, the wisdom of those who on the outside seem strong and, and in control with this, this idea of the cross. He continues in verse 20 talking about how God's wisdom is to save those who believe through Christ crucified and yet to the Jews and the Greeks, it's a stumbling block. And yet to those of us who know God, it's actually wisdom. In fact, as he ends chapter one, he calls Jesus the wisdom from God and the power of God. So I think if you were to take chapter one and two and just kind of summarize them, you could say scripturally and textually, that the wisdom of God is the cross of Christ. It is also the power of God. Remember, they're very close siblings, we say. And this actually, to those who are believers, makes sense because where else is the wisdom of God and the power of God displayed better? Nowhere else but the cross. Now, this explains to us why it's called wisdom of God. Why is that? Because only in in God's economy and mind, could he take what the world sees as a defeat? Would God take what the world considers to be a losing effort? What the world thinks is foolishness, the murder of a man who claimed to be the Messiah. Well, that wasn't very helpful, I guess. He, he didn't win, did he? God took that very death and used it as the means by which he would save all who believe. Now watch this. That's called the wisdom of God. And God planned this before the ages. He knew that he would send his son, the second person of the Trinity, God among us, to take our place and die as the penalty for sin in the place of sinners. And in so doing, God then would be satisfied in his wrath against sin. And he would apply all of that credit and righteousness to those who had all the debit. Are you following me? In other words, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, those who, who don't know Christ and are sinful, they receive God's righteousness and Christ received their sinfulness. It's the great exchange. 
This is why it's wise because it actually then excludes boasting. No one can say, well, here's what I did as part of that. No, if this is the wisdom of God and it is, then guess what your only option is? Watch this church, to rest in that. Like you can't boast in the cross because you didn't plan it. You didn't die. All you did was bring sin to the picture. Christ died for us. He's the sacrifice, the atonement, the redeemer. This was God's intention and plan. And so it's his wisdom that's on display. It's his power that's on display. And when we look at the cross as God's wisdom, it undercuts and purges all pride from the picture. And that is, by the way, what God's intent is. To receive maximum glory and to remove all boasting. In fact, don't you love the way that the word rest in verse 5 is contrasted against the word boasting in chapter 1? I think it's mentioned three times in chapter 1. So the wisdom of the cross is that it alone lets God receive glory. It removes man from any boasting. It shows the cross, yes, the place of, that's terrible and beautiful of God's sacrifice. And yet what man considers to be foolish and folly, God actually uses to save people. Only God could comprehend this. No ear or mind or tongue can tell it or think of it. It's amazing what God has done for those who love him. Amen, church? So, so understand that the wisdom of God in his most succinct fashion is the cross of Christ. We can use words like the gospel to describe it. I think that's an okay synonym. The gospel may include more, but the heart of that, of course, is the cross. But I think it's okay to refer to the wisdom of God as the gospel or the cross, the message of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Understand, just briefly again, this, this wisdom, it has content, Christ's cross, but it also has a character, and that's Christ. So this is God's wisdom, both content and a character, both truth and a person. And it's this content, this um, wisdom that leads to God's power. Now, as we continue to think about um, this equation that's kind of jumping out of this chapter, we see God's power, we see God's wisdom, we have to ask ourselves this next question. So how in the world then do you get God's wisdom? If it's hidden, if it's inaccessible humanly or naturally, and yet it's the key to really God's power, and it's the key to seeing where our faith should rest, like how does one then access God's wisdom? How do you get that? Well, verse 10 tells us. Let's lift this out of the chapter and see what it says. These things, speaking of what God has done for those who love him, which I think is his redemptive plan, that's incremental and yet impossible to access humanly. These things God has revealed to us through the, say it church, spirit. And from that point forward, Paul mentions the word spirit seven times, five of them referring to the Holy Spirit. And he ends with this amazing phrase in verse 16 that says this, we have the mind of Christ. And I believe the phrase mind of Christ there would be like a, a, a pointer or maybe even say a euphemism for the Holy Spirit. Who lives in the children of God? 
the mind of Christ so you can know the things of God because the Holy Spirit will relay them to you. And what he lays out in 10 through 16 is this point that, that nobody knows a person like the, the inner spirit of that person. And so if you want to know God and his secret and hidden things, you need his spirit. And so God gives his spirit for this very purpose, to illuminate, to flip the switch, to turn the light on about his things so that you get them. One of those happens the moment you believe and are born again. The Holy Spirit flips the light. And what you thought was once foolish, Jesus dying on a cross, it now becomes a, a treasure. It didn't make sense before, but in a second, the Holy Spirit breathes on you and you begin to see, oh, so that's, this is how God's plan works. He took my place. He died for my sin. So that's what's happening here. The Holy Spirit is the only way God's wisdom is accessed and God's power is only accessed through God's wisdom. So you see the equation begin to happen? God's power, God's wisdom, God's spirit. And the spirit is necessary for this to work and to happen. Now there's much we can say about God's spirit in these last few verses. I would encourage you, you'll hear them read in a few moments, but just take some time in your family, talk through them in your small group perhaps. I would ask you to notice a couple of things. Um, one is in verse 13. I love the way Paul here says that he imparts this wisdom in words not taught by human wisdom, but by the Spirit. And so he says he actually uses words that the Spirit actually empowers and illuminates. So I, can I just say this to you plainly and very pastorally? It matters that we use words that are gospel-saturated. Like, we can't be afraid of words like the cross, the crucifixion, the death and burial of Christ, or gospel. Because if we eliminate words that actually talk about God's wisdom, we're actually eliminating ways, or you can say it like this, we're eliminating the words that the Holy Spirit uses to open people's minds. We don't want to run from or hide from God's wisdom. We should embrace it and proclaim it. I'll say more in a minute about that. Just understand, Paul here says, we're actually using certain words to describe what happened in the life of Christ so that God's spirit now will open eyes and minds and give them God's wisdom and let them experience God's power. Now, one more note about this idea of God's wisdom and the spirit being the only way that we can access it. You might hear this and think, oh, I guess if someone's hearing the gospel and the spirit's not acting upon them or moving upon them, they're just hearing gibberish. That's not true. They don't hear it as gibberish. They hear it as rubbish. Don't be distracted. Listen very carefully. The gospel to someone who can't understand it because the spirit isn't enabling them to they're the person who hears it and they, they may could actually articulate it back to you. They could use English words and they could get the right progression and the right order. It would sound the same as if you said it. 
but there's no heart of belief in it. And so all they've done is articulate it. They haven't appreciated it or received it. You see, it's the person who can simply say it like it's a fact, like it's just a matter of information, but they've not experienced those very truths and those very words as a matter of salvation. And only, church, listen, only the Holy Spirit can take information and turn it to salvation. You see, my fear, and I've just felt this burden this week more than usual. And I don't want to say fear. I think you know my heart in this, but my burden is that perhaps we have people in this room who've mastered the art of articulation, but you don't treasure the gospel. You don't value Jesus. You correctly understand him historically. You agree to certain facts intellectually. You have the wisdom of men. And you use Jesus and the gospel and his body to leverage, uh, as a leverage to get what you want at times. So you're involved in church. You see it as a great pool of potential customers. If all these neat things you're going to do to be involved. And God is like a long lever to you. It's like a pole. You're going to be able to move whatever you can. It's good for you. And so that leaves you at a place to boast. Look at all I've done. And I've even used the gospel to get some of these things done. I'm a good person. I'll probably gain God's attention. He'll probably look at me with favor because of what I've done. Yeah, that person's not a Christian. They're not born again. No matter how many times they attend a church service, join a small group, give money, or articulate the right order of gospel work, they're not a Christian if they're boasting. And my burden has been that we've, that, some, that somehow maybe we've learned how to articulate things that we don't appreciate. If that's you this morning, I, I just am praying that in this very second, the Holy Spirit will illuminate your eyes so that you move from articulation to now reception and appreciation. What does John say? That to as many as received him, then God gave them the right to be the children of God, even to those who call on his name. When you realize that you have been invited in and brought into God's family as a child and he's your heavenly father, it's not just an articulating matter. It is an appreciating and a reception matter. And you now begin to value this wisdom, this gospel. You see it now as a treasure in a field. And you're going to sell everything you have to make sure you can get it. And you, you see the cross that Christ died on? And you're willing to take up your cross and follow him. You're certainly not worried about leveraging anything. You're not worried about impressiveness or appearance or human strength. You're humbled that Christ would take the, the way of the cross and sacrifice his life. And so you're now willing to give your life in response. This is the earmark of those truly 
born again by the Spirit. There's no boasting. There's only resting in God's divine activity on their behalf. So do you see the equation? God's power, God's wisdom, God's spirit. This is the equation for all life change. Memorize these six words, hold on to them, put them in your pocket. And by the way, if you were to reverse engineer this, this equation, you'll find that we are given insight into another role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit always points to the Father. He always points to the Son. He always magnifies what the Father and Son did. And so as God's Spirit takes the word of the cross and magnifies it in the hearts and minds of people and opens their eyes to it, what's he doing? He's pointing to Jesus. He's giving glory to God for his wisdom in bringing forth Christ to be the sacrifice for our sins. That's the Holy Spirit's work, to always point to the wisdom of God, which is the plan of God and the Son of God for the people of God. So church, we need the Holy Spirit, don't we? He is not a luxury. He is a necessity. We need him for regeneration. We need him for revival, illumination. The Holy Spirit is always needed, and especially in preaching environments. You know, in all honesty, this is a chapter about preaching. So I'm probably the most convicted this morning, right? That we have to be willing to realize that when we're preaching, it's the Holy Spirit that opens the eyes and minds of people. And how does he do that? Through the plain preaching of the gospel, especially the cross of Christ. And when that's clearly proclaimed, Christ is magnified, lifted up, God's glory is seen, his plan understood. The Holy Spirit illuminates and people are saved. So what does this call for? Well, there's probably several applications we can make. I just want to make one this morning. It applies to me, our elders and other pastors and teachers here. And it applies to you as our congregation. But here's the one I want to make. I think it's fitting for our time. I think it's fitting for our situation. Let us commit Maybe we can say, let us stay committed. But I think for simplicity, let's just, let's just say this. Let us stay committed to maximum clarity. Now is not the time for cloudiness or fuzziness. Right, church? And it's never been the time for it, okay? But in our culture currently, when there is a, a, a drive towards ambiguity... I mean, you pick your issue, marriage, gender, dignity of life. Think about it. We just want to kind of embrace everybody's thoughts as true. Like, you know what? Wherever you believe, you can just jump on board. It's all right. No, actually, it's not all right. There is a clear right and there's a clear wrong. And this is especially true for eternity. There is a clear right and a clear wrong. And there's one way to God. It's through his son, Jesus. Let's commit to maximum gospel clarity. Let's commit to explicitness with our gospel language. Our community, our culture does not need weak voices. They don't need fuzzy, cloudy pastors or preachers. They don't need unsure, uh, you know, timid followers. Our community needs clear 
crystal clear, courageously clear, pastors, preachers, and congregants who know the only way out of the mess is the word of the cross. So hear my heart, church. The world may call us crazy. They may call you odd. They may imprison you, fine you, cancel you, mock you, ridicule you. All that could happen. Commit to clarity regardless. Because, you know, it, it should not matter to you or to me what they do to us in their response to the word of the cross. Because your life is not your own. My life is not my own. It was purchased at the cross. I'm just a messenger. I'm just an ambassador. I say it like this. I'm just a paper boy. I'm delivering the news. I don't have to think of it. I got the greatest job in the world. I get a script every week. Just preach out of the Bible, tell the truth, let it land where it lands, right? And whatever it costs, it costs. Our lives are not our own. And we should, as Jesus did, lay down our life for the mission and the cause of God. In his wisdom, he knows that it is the, it is the cross that brings people to where their faith rests in the power of God. So let's preach Christ crucified. Let's stay committed to extreme clarity and understanding that often clarity will produce or invite or result in conflict. And this is one of the problems we're facing. Conflict has scared many pastors away from preaching clearly. I just want you to know I'm 100% committed. <laughs> to clarity like never before and to knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified. That's the message the Holy Spirit uses to turn on the light, to flip the switch. And when that occurs, then suddenly they begin to experience God's power. And that's the end game, isn't it? That people will know God's power. You think about the folks in your neighborhood and your house is near you, broken by sin, chained, mastered by dysfunction. They need the message of the cross. So whatever you do, church, this is not the time to be cloudy. Will you join me in living a life and speaking with words that are crystal clear, courageously clear, so that the Spirit of God will use the wisdom of God to bring about the power of God. As I promised, I want you to hear this whole chapter in one flow. You've seen the equation. You've seen the phrases. You can't understand what Paul's aiming at, but I want you to hear it now in one sitting. So the band's going to join me. I'm going to pray for you. And then as they read through this, we're going to sing part of a song and then we'll come back and experience communion together. This is all designed to help us understand Man, it's the message of the cross that God's spirit uses and so that you will leave more committed to a lifestyle of clarity and courage in a culture that so desperately needs it. Can I pray for you? Lord, you see our hearts and our, our postures now. We know we cannot lay claim to your wisdom on our own. We do not have that capacity 
It's impossible to understand apart from your spirit. So God, in this moment, would you empower understanding by your spirit regarding your wisdom, the things of God as they're called, namely the cross of Christ. And would you in this moment, God, open eyes and hearts who prior to this very moment perhaps have never understood why it was this way or what it meant or how what it resulted in. But would you just in this moment supernaturally with divine activity cause people to move from boasting to resting? God, would you purge pride, expunge pride, remove boasting? And would you by your sovereign grace plant people's feet squarely on what you have done through your son? And God, would your spirit give insight into that in this very moment? Lord, thank you for the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. I pray we would understand it experientially in this very moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.